All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, so we are continuing in this uh, sermon series we've been doing on discovering humanity. And so essentially, Bill uh, has really just kind of started in Genesis 1, and he's been tracing uh, through the biblical story things we need to know about ourselves, about humanity. So uh, first week, obviously, he was touching on the fact that we are created in the image of God. Uh, I think the second week he looked at Genesis 3 and in terms of what happened in what we call the fall. And then uh, in subsequent weeks, he looked at, you know, what does it mean to be made in the images? How does that flesh out in Genesis 1? So we saw male and female. Uh, We saw that we are to be fruitful and multiply. We are are to have dominion. And so this week we're taking, um, you know, we're not deviating from humanity. We're talking about humanity, but we're going in a slightly different path. And we're going to be looking at uh, the composition. Like, what is the stuff of humanity? What are we made of? And, And that's going to be the terms body and soul. And so the reason this kind of popped in and, and I'm doing is that it, it stems somewhat back from um, April when I did, we were doing the Christology series and we looked at the idea of Christ and his two natures and that he takes on a fully human nature, body and soul, so that way he could redeem us completely. And so now that we have the opportunity to kind of focus in on humanity, uh, we want to look at what is our stuff? What does it mean to be body and soul? And so as I was preparing this uh, and I... I was just thinking on it, and I couldn't shake the idea that I wanted to maybe take the introduction to somewhat recalibrate. So instead of diving in immediately in terms of what does it mean to be body and soul, to focus on the fact that all of this discussion of humanity and and who we are must be done in light of who God is. And so, David, I thank you. That was a great worship set because I really felt like it was the creation facing their creator and, and focusing on him. The focus is supposed to be on him. And so when we study doctrine, when we're learning these things about ourselves, we can't lose sight of the fact that he is, is the center and the foundation of everything, that, that the, our doctrine of God has to be what everything else flows from. Uh, there's a, an 18th or 19th century uh, Dutch Reformed theologian named Herman Bobvink. He said it this way. He says, the knowledge of God is essentially the only doctrine or dogma, the exclusive content, that the entire field of theology, all of the doctrines that we discuss in theology, whether it be uh, creation and the universe, whether it be humanity, which is what we're studying now, whether it be our doctrine of Christ and what does it mean uh, that he has redeemed us, that he is our substitute, and on and on and on and on, are but the explication or, or the flowing out from this one central doctrine of our knowledge of God. All things are need to be considered in light of God. They are subsumed under him. In other words, the doctrine of God is the overarching umbrella, and they need to be traced back to him as the starting point. And so from this comes this really key distinction of our creator and creature distinction that we have to be careful as we're learning about who we are as humans, what we're discussing and, 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 and wrestling through with ourselves. We have to be careful that we don't too quickly then say, because well, we're made in God's image, so God is then like this. There is a distinction. He's a different being. He's the one who gives us life. We reflect him. He doesn't reflect us. And so uh, a couple months ago, we were talking about God's attributes in our doctrine class, and we got to uh, one that's not really discussed at all. You may have never even heard of it. It's this idea of divine impassibility. And, and it's a tough doctrine. It's very controversial. And it's the idea that God does not suffer. 
And so that hits our ears and we think of the cross of Christ and we're like, clearly there's suffering there. But the idea is that God and his God being is so transcendent, so other, that he doesn't receive pain because he's God, he's perfect. What is, pain is the idea that there's an, uh, a lack of power or an imperfection in us that we were unable to stop it. We didn't know it was coming. And so the idea is that God is not this stone that has no affections. No, we know God is love, but the idea is that we must be careful that we're not taking what we know of our emotions and then casting them back onto God. And so the one thing we talked about is this idea that God does not react to anything, that God knows all things, that God is all powerful. He's never reacting. He's always acting in 100% Uh, consistency with his nature. Whereas those of us who are parents, I think we would very much admit that we do react and are controlled by our emotions rather than being controlled by rational thought. At least maybe it's just me. Anyone else? Raise of hands. Thank you, Victor. I knew it. And probably, yeah. So then building off of this, so again, I know this is weird because we're supposed to be talking about body and soul, but again, I just could not shake this idea that we need to make sure that we have a right view of God. So we're not taking what we're thinking in terms of what humanity is and then seeing our culture and then absorbing what the cultural humanity is like and then saying God must be like this because we're in his image. Further, we are, our stuff is body and soul. That's the idea of a composite, that we're made up of parts. But God is spirit, as Jesus tells us in John 4. So God is not made up of parts. And this is this idea of divine simplicity. That God is perfect, pure spirit in his nature, and that means that he is his attributes. Whereas we can only possess attributes, we can grow in them, they're parts of us. We can't say of ourselves that we are love. Only the triune God can say he is love. He's not 25% love and 20% justice and and 30% mercy and these things. No, he is all of his attributes in one, and they completely overlap, overlap because they are he or who he is. They are his nature. You can't chop up God and him still be God, whereas with ourselves, we can, you know, we can lose a limb or we can do these things, and it doesn't make us any less a human being, but we are able to reach less of our potential. So someone with, with two arms is able to do a little bit more than someone who unfortunately only has one. And so... What I'm pushing into is we should, as a church, be focusing on and studying on and meditating on the attributes of God. We should know them well because as we study them, we actually get a better frame and understanding of who we are as his image bearers. And so we know God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. We see this in Isaiah 40, verse 28, that the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint, but yet we get tired. We can grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Our understanding is very searchable. You can determine how much we know. This God is incomprehensible. This idea that we, in and of ourselves as creatures, cannot understand God. We can't attain knowledge of God unless he reveals it to us. And we get this in general revelation and special revelation. Again, Isaiah 40, God says, To whom will you liken me? And what likeness will you compare with him? We can't look and and understand God and his God being starting with creation. We must go to God who reveals himself to us. This God is transcendent. He is beyond 
the entire universe, the entire cosmos. Psalm 145, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Coming back to this idea of God's emotions and impassibility, we read in 1 Samuel 15, and this is a very interesting passage because I think it's bookended by these two statements that God regretted that he made Saul. But then dead center in the middle, there's this idea that the glory of Israel, God will not lie or have regret. And why won't he have regret? The author tells us, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And so the Bible's not contradicting itself. It's letting us know that we need to wrestle through the fact that the author is conveying, how can we understand this scenario where God has positioned Saul, but Saul did not live up to the expectations of a king, and so God has to remove him and install the one who will do that. So we have to understand that in our human finiteness as, as a level of regret. But it's not regret in the same way we regret things. Because God, whereas we are not all-knowing, not all-powerful, God knew in his installation of Saul, he even ordained it that this was not the king that there would come after Saul, one who is a man after God's own heart. And so we can't look at regret the same way when we talk about God. God has life in himself, John 5. That uh, Also the idea that God is eternal, and we know we are not. That there's a beautiful verse in Isaiah 57 where it says that God, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, when I read that phrase, it, I like, I, you just sit and meditate. This is the idea of biblical meditation, that you're not trying to empty yourself, but take of the scriptures, read it, and then pause and actually let it move around in your brain. This God who sits in, who dwells in, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He dwells in the high and holy places, but he also dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. I don't know if there's, there's few more beautiful verses to my heart right now that the God who inhabits eternity, this utter transcendence is also very intimately with the one who's of a contrite and lowly spirit, who understands our finiteness and our, our lack of worth before him. He's with us in that while also still inhabiting all of eternity. Again, we could speak that God is everywhere. God is sovereign. God is just. And so again, we're speaking in terms of composition, and this is under this umbrella of what's called ontology, which is basically the study of the nature of being. What, is it, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be God? And again, we have to understand God is an entirely different being. He's not a superhero. This isn't Marvel movies where we're using all of the uh, understandings of human strength, human uh, abilities, and then simply these superheroes have them in an infinite matter. God isn't just quantitatively more than us. He is qualitatively. He's of an, a different substance, a different quality. And so again, I'm, I'm not trying to belabor it, but I just cannot shake it this week that we need to begin with this huge view of God before we come to the substance of what it means for us to be humans, body and soul. That we as creatures always exist in a from God reality. That he is life and he gives it. We can only receive life from him. And the technical term is that our knowledge of God is analogical. Which means that it's not a one-to-one. -one, that God's power is not in the same way that we have power as humans. 
Like again, and it's not just an infinite measure. It's, it's a God power that we don't have, that he can speak Jupiter into existence. And I can't even get my four-year-old to pay attention when I say anything to her. So this is not the same power of speech. But at the same time, it's not entirely different, that there is no overlap, that there is similarities, but the similarities is not a one-to-one. So again, way of introduction. And then lastly, uh, as we go into this idea of looking at body and soul, there's, there's kind of two views that, that are very uh, much within the bounds of evangelical conservative Christianity. And these are uh, the technical terms dichotomy, which is the idea that humanity is made up of two parts, body and soul. And then the idea of trichotomy, that humanity is made up of body, soul, and spirit. Now, again, these are very much within the bounds of evangelicalism. Um, I personally take the two-part position, and that's kind of where I'm going to go from for the rest of the sermon. But on on the website, I'm going to have some links to some articles if you're interested in diving deeper into this discussion of of presenting the different views. Because, again, you're not a heretic if you believe in three parts or two parts. You're just wrestling with the scriptures, and the scriptures at times present soul and spirit as maybe distinct ideas. Anyway, so just so you know where I'm coming from. And after that, by way of introduction, that was way too long, I apologize, uh, we're going to actually dive into the scriptures and deal with this. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to use our launching point, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 4. And we read from Moses, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so uh, that phrase, these are the generations, this is this uh, Hebrew word toledo. Uh, It's a good word to know because it's it's one of the structural uh, points that Moses puts into his narrative in the book of Genesis. And so I think there's about 11 throughout the book of Genesis. And, and to, to say what they do simply, it's, it's the idea that in Genesis 1, God makes this entire creation. He makes this entire cosmos. And you come to chapter 2, and the idea is that you're, you're in some ways asking this question, well, what happened to this creation? And so then the Toledot says, okay, we're looking back at this what has come before, but we're going to zoom in on a, on a specific aspect Uh, in the next narrative. And so in this regard, we are looking at the entire creation, the heavens and the earth, but we're going to zoom in to the formation of this man, Adam. So the other uh, moments that we see this in the book of Genesis, chapter 5, these are the generations of Adam, and then it essentially zooms in to Noah. Then there's these are the generations of Noah, and then it zooms into this story of Noah, which we know as the flood. So you guys get the point. And so we're zooming in, and we're going to get a more intimate look, a more detailed look of what we know as day six of creation from chapter one. So we read in verse five, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. And so this is, uh, these are two interesting uh, verses because they're almost structured grammatically similar to verse 2 in chapter 1. The idea that the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And we, so we see Noah, or Noah, Moses creating this kind of anticipation of this further detail of Genesis chapter, or day 6, 
with the idea that there's, okay, there's formless and void, darkness upon the face of the deep, chapter 1. We see there's no bush of the field, no small plant, and that the Lord had not caused it to rain, for there was no man to work the ground. And we know the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and here we have a mist going up from the land. So Moses is building this anticipation, getting us to what God is going to do in verse 7. He says, then the Lord God, and so I want to pause there because this is the first instance, if you're reading chronologically through the scriptures, so starting in Genesis 1, in chapter 1, we get a, a, a large amount of the word for God, Elohim, 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 knowing that God is essentially the main character in chapter 1. And then when we switch after this first Toledot, we're zooming in on this creation of humanity, we get Moses introduces this name for God, Yahweh, that he was given, as we know in the story in Exodus chapter 3 and following, that this is this relational name of God, which signals to us that God is creating this particular part of his creation that we know from Genesis 1, that's his image, and we're further getting emphasis that there's going to be a unique relationship between God and this man, between God and humanity. And so Yahweh, God, formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And so God forms, he fashions Adam. This is this, like, a, it carries this idea of almost like a potter or this beautiful artist is forming and crafting this particular creature that is unique. As just read from Psalm 139, the, the psalmist is reflecting upon, you have woven me together. You knew me. You have knit me together in my mother's womb. There's, there's a beautiful intimacy that God, Yahweh, has with his creature humanity. And so we see that Adam, whose name derives essentially from where he was formed from, the ground, which is the Hebrew word Adama. So you have Adam and Adama. I think Bill mentioned that either last week or the week before. And so God fits and makes his bottom from the stuff, his body from the stuff of the ground. And then he goes on to breathe into his being, into his body, this breath of life. And then man becomes a living creature. He becomes a living soul. The Hebrew term is uh, nefesh, which is, it has a broad range of meaning. And the interesting thing about this phrase is that it is the same word used for the, the birds and the animals in uh, chapter one. And so why this is, this is, I think, really interesting to me is that there's a fittedness in what God is putting mankind to do, that they are to rule, they are to have dominion, they are to be fruitful and multiply. And what are they ruling over? They're ruling over creation. And they're a rightful ruler over creation because they're not disconnected from the stuff of creation. No, Adam is pulled. He's to have dominion and subdue the earth, and he's pulled from the actual stuff of the earth. That he, They're to have dominion over these animals, over these creatures, and they have this same nefesh, this connection to these creatures. And so God, who is the spirit, who is the sovereign king over all creation, he doesn't put one of the spiritual beings, he doesn't put one of the angels under him in charge of this physical, material, created word, world. No, instead he forms from this created world one who would be a fitting and rightful ruler under God to subdue it, to take care of it, to work it, and to keep it, as Bill, I think, looked at last week. And so here we have 
in, in, this, in these verses, this idea we have the formation of our body and we have the formation of our souls. And so these things are meant intimately to stay together, that they're never meant to be separated, that all things function uh, interconnectedly. I was texting Scotty last night, telling him to help me really quickly with this series because this is kind of his area of study and expertise, is this idea of how your body will then affect your conscience, affect your moods. The choices that you make will even bring about effects on your body, whether it be uh, poor eating habits, whether it be you can't sleep because you're awake from anxiety. These things are interconnected. That if your heart stops beating, you stop. It's not just that this immaterial part uh, wants to exist without your heart. No, they are intimately connected. God has designed our immaterial parts, our intellect, our will, to function by means and through our physical body. So when we're thinking, we're processing, our brain is firing and the synapses are going. That these work together. And so under also this idea of the soul is what we call our conscience, what we call our will, what we call our mind, our intellect. These things are all under this soul umbrella. And so as uh, following what Bill's pattern in the sermon series, so we've looked at a theme. So we're looking at body and soul. And so we want to ask the questions, how has sin ruined it and how has Christ redeemed it? So essentially sin has ruined uh, our body and soul in, in a total package because these things are connected. We can't separate them apart. And this is, uh, depending on your background, you may have heard this term before, but this is this idea of total depravity. Now, that's a term that unfortunately has been uh, misunderstood. It's, it, a lot of people take it to mean that humanity is as bad as they possibly and absolutely could be. And that's not what the term is trying to get at. The term is emphasizing the fact that the totality of our being, body and soul, our conscience, our minds, our wills, everything has been affected, ruined, and stained by sin. That we can't separate these things. Sin has not just brought decay and death and sickness to our physical bodies. It has brought those same things to our souls and everything that falls under the umbrella of the soul. Again, it could be our heart, metaphorically, our mind, will. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, that Paul says that you were born dead in sins and trespasses, that you were by nature, your very being, you were children under wrath. Romans chapter 3, really all of Romans 1, 2, 3, Paul is making a very comprehensive and exhaustive argument that whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Gentile, you are falling short of the standard and glory of God. You are under sin. You are under God's wrath. And chapter three, or the chapter three in the middle, I think verses uh, nine to twenty or eleven to twenty, end with this just scathing quotation from the Old Testament of Paul just being like, "We are total scum. Like there is no one good. There is no one righteous." And again, you've got to make sure you're doing those comparisons from us to God. Because we can all find people we're better than. It's, you can't, you know, we're all better than Hitler, at least on a horizontal level. But Paul is saying, look, if we're using God as the measuring rod, the doctrine of God, God is our background, everything is subsumed under that, we're pretty bad. Because we get our very breath and, and all the, the thoughts and, and words that we uh, bring out can only exist because God allows them to exist and how often do we not use them for his glory? 
Or even worse, we use them to violate his holy law. And so we know later in Romans chapter 5, Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man, so sin comes in through Adam. Death through sin comes. So we see here in our bodies, we ultimately die because death has spread to all men because all have sinned. The uh, 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith puts it this way. Um, Chapter 6, it says, By this sin of our first parents, what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3, they fell from their original righteousness and their communion with God, that relationship that God desired and designed humanity to have. And we fell in them. Adam is our representative. So this is, the, this is actually what original sin is. It's not that that was the first sin that Adam and Eve committed. It's actually that the effects of that spread to all their descendants. And through this, death came upon all, just like Paul says in Romans 5. And all became dead in sin, Ephesians chapter 2, and were completely defiled in all of the capabilities and parts of soul and body, which is in some ways a summary of Romans chapter 3. And so ultimately, our greatest enemy, death in some ways, separates these two things that were not meant to be separated. And so ultimately, sin has ruined this perfect composite that God has designed, that he said was very good after he looked at his whole creation. In Genesis chapter 1, death has done and separated what God intended not to be separated. And so how has Christ redeemed it? And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 uh, to see how Christ has brought about a, a solution to this problem. And so uh, the context for Corinthians, if you've never read it, uh, basically it's a letter uh, where Paul is just really letting these, these guys in Corinth know you're not doing really well. So if, you, if you're ever discouraged about, you know, Revolve, man, they really need to get their act together, just read Corinthians and then you'll be like, we're actually not that bad. So, but anyway, so they're, they're, he's addressing a ton of problems. And ultimately, these problems are leading to divisions within the church. And Paul has a really strong uh, position against divisions in the church because we're one body and we're united under the head who is Christ. And so division is not a good thing that should be existing in the church of God. And so Paul begins chapter 15 kind of shifting to a new problem. But instead of addressing the problem right away, he gives a beautiful, succinct summary of the gospel that he says that Christ was crucified for us in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And so then he moves on to what's, what's the problem he's now addressing. After he has give a, a summary of the gospel, verse 12, he says that some of you are denying that there will be a resurrection, that the, the fellow saints in the church of Corinth that have passed away, there's people saying, well, they're actually not going to be raised because there, in reality, is no resurrection. And so then Paul goes on to say, essentially, if, if there is no resurrection, if these saints who have died in the Lord are, are not going to be raised again, what are we doing? Basically, his conclusion is that our faith is useless. It is pointless That if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Because if there is no life after death, then why? what are we doing here on a Sunday morning? We should be sleeping in. We should be going to breakfast. We should be having brunch. We should be doing all those things because there is nothing after. And so Paul basically is saying, uh, he's sarcastically kind of mocking this logic 
Because if Christ, if the gospel, if they've believed the gospel, if they've believed that Christ is raised from the dead, why in the world would you try to argue that then those united to him would not be raised from the dead? So as he says in uh, chapter, or verse 20 of 15, he says, For as by one man came death, this Adam, then he puts up Christ as this second man, has come also the resurrection of the dead. And so to getting to our verses that we're going to kind of zero in on, verse 35, we read, But someone will ask, all right, Paul, if there is really a resurrection, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they have? Or what kind of body do they come back with? And so we can kind of tell that this is, you know, a mocking question because Paul's response is not very gentle. It's not like he's, he's leaning in to be like, look, I know you're struggling with this. I'm going to help you out. He responds, you foolish person. Gotta love when Paul doesn't pull any punches. And basically by the end of the letter, I'm sure he's running out of patience with these people. What you sow, continuing in verse 36, does not come to life unless it dies. And so the idea is when you put a seed in the ground, you're burying it. Just like, you know, we, we bury those who have passed away. And so you're burying this seed with the knowing hope that it will then spring to something new. Verse 37, what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but is a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So you sow the seed. You're not burying an entire apple tree to then get more apple trees. No, you bury a seed that will then eventually turn into an apple tree. Verse 39, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, another for fish. So then he continues his logic. If there's different types of bodies for all these things, then he can then argue there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another of the glory of the moon and of the stars for each star differs in glory. Verse 32, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And so what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. And so connecting back to verse 37, Paul's continuing with his metaphor that we sow a seed and it blooms and grows to something different. So it is with the resurrection from the dead, that we sow uh, uh, what is perishable, and then it will then come in light of Christ's resurrection back imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. We in Adam, our stuff from Adam is one of dishonor. It is in shame. We're, we're in Adam. We're in sin. We were by nature children under wrath, Ephesians 2. But in our union with Christ, we know that this body will be transformed and it will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. We know we get tired. We know we get frustrated. We know we get stressed out. But instead, it will be raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is of the stuff of Adam. But it will be raised a spiritual or supernatural body. And if there are natural bodies, there is a spiritual body. In other words, that as our body has been affected by sin, and that was not God's design, in the storyline of Scripture, following God's plan to redeem, he makes us new creations. And this new creation is better because we see it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. We read that from Genesis chapter 2. But this last Adam... This Emmanuel, this God with us, and as he says in John chapter 5, that he has life in himself granted by the Father, this Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
that this man doesn't just get life in his body, but he really is the God who gives life. Verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. Basically, Paul's just following the storyline of the Bible, that God made humanity. He pulled Adam from the dust. They fell. God promises one from the seed of the woman will redeem. He's a new Adam. There's going to be a new creation. And so he's just following the timeline of the scriptures, that the natural came, came first, but we will ultimately are looking forward to the supernatural, to the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. So the idea that, you know, if you are in Adam, if you're still existing in the old creation, then you are going to continue to be like the old creation. You're going to be perishable. You're going to be dishonored, weak, uh, a natural body. But those who are united to Christ by faith, we know in 2 Corinthians 5, are new creations. And so just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus said such in John chapter 3. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And so the idea that not all will die upon Christ's second coming, but all will ultimately be changed, which he has argued in the previous section that the perishable must put on... Oh, that's later. Uh, for the trumpet will sound, and it will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and you shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. I was getting ahead of myself. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And so at that resurrection, our, soul, our bodies will now match the new creation of our souls, that they will be reunited, and these bodies will be fitting for our redeemed souls. And then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But we thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this great enemy that we had, death that then separates our body and souls, Christ through his sacrificial work, through essentially the gospel message that he was our substitute, because before death and the law reigned over us because God had to remain just, that he could not just wipe away everything without proper payment. He had to be just. And so death had this power but that now that Christ has come, has lived the perfect life, has been our substitute, has paid this penalty on our behalf, God can now be just and the justifier to then give us new life in him. And so what does this matter for us, body and soul? How does this apply? Christ has conquered death. We know and can live in light of the hope that our bodies will be reunited with our souls. And they won't just be weak, perishable bodies. They will be bodies fitting for a perfect new creation. And so how does this apply to our body? And so this is uh, Dave Walker, another one of our elders, is looking at next week this idea of community. And so kind of leading in for him um, with the advent of social media, with the advent of like the prevalence of online church, we are essentially functionally disconnecting our bodies from our souls. 
And so what I mean by that is we are engaging. Yes, we're physically typing. We're physically watching. But the actual event, the, 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 the word for church means assembly. The actually assembly, we're only engaging it with our minds, with, with our thoughts. We're not actually physically present. Our, our voices aren't being heard through our vocal cords coming out of our mouth so that our fellow saints gathered with us can then be taught and admonished as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together we see in Colossians chapter 3. And so I want to say that online church, and you guys are all here, so we're all doing a good job, is just an exception, not the norm. And so I say exception, not the norm, because obviously there's circumstances, whether it's a health issue or, or other things, that you then, uh, you have to take what you can get, for no lack of a better way to say it. But we must strive to highly value how God has designed this, that we are to be together, body and soul gathered together. And, and I have to confess that in terms of discipleship, I'm too content to essentially have digital discipleship, that I'm too content to just have it be through text messages, have it be through social media. When God has designed us to do these things together, physically present, physically gathering. Now, again, that's not throwing out this idea of dis long-distance communication. Paul wrote letters. First Corinthians is a letter. He was not present with the Corinthians. But in most of his letters, Paul always has some level of he's desiring to be together. That the letter was the exception. That he has to send this to them to correct issues. But ultimately, he wants to be there. He wants his body present with the ideas of his mind that go forth in these letters. Also, we read in Romans chapter 12 that Paul, after giving a long presentation of the gospel, says he appeals to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship that you get this connection between we're presenting our physical bodies and this is then through our, our hearts, through our minds, through our souls is ultimately physical or spiritual worship. Lastly, with soul, I want to read uh, from Scotty. He had sent me a text last night and he, he has a blog where he sent this, the idea that we are made up of two parts, body and soul. And these two are interconnected, a bond in togetherness that we are in fact embodied souls. And so the idea is that these things will affect one another. That if you lie, then you get anxieties. You feel guilt. These are immaterial emotions. But at the same time, that guilt, that anxiety, again, can cause you to lose sleep. You can stress. Your blood pressure can raise and elevate. These things affect one another. And so when we come to, in terms of soul health, they have to be addressed together. There could be issues uh, that you are physically uh, doing, whether you're, you're not getting active, you're, you don't have any hobbies that are bringing you emotional joy. These things are all uh, affecting and interconnecting to one another. And so... Uh, if I can explain this clearly, because I, I tried to explain it to a coworker and his eyes glazed over. So if I'm doing the same thing to you, I apologize. But I feel like today, and I think Scotty would concur with me because this is kind of his area of study and expertise, is we want to kind of categorize and compartmentalize all of these different levels of health. That we have mental health, 
and we have emotional health, and we have spiritual health, and we have physical health, and we all put them in their little patterns, and we pick one off the shelf, and we're like, you know what, I'm really going to focus on my mental health this week, and then maybe your physical health gets put to the side. And the point is, in this body-soul composite that is completely interconnected, you can't address these issues that way, that they have to be addressed holistically. And I think especially in terms of like the immaterial level, so the idea of emotional, mental, and, and, uh, and spiritual, they need to be put under this larger umbrella of soul health. That you can't address your emotional or mental health unless you're doing so in light of the God who has designed you and has given you his word that refreshes and restores your soul. That if we're not going to be, as the psalmist says in Psalm 42, as deers who pant for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That we should not expect to have very strong and robust health mentally, emotionally, spiritually in these, in these areas unless our souls are thirsting for God and then we're striving to give the spiritual nourishment that then can revive our souls. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and, I, and you will find rest for your souls. And so ultimately, for us as body and soul, we have to, do, we have to live out our lives in light of God, knowing that he has designed us he knows us better, and we need to pursue health and discipleship and all these things in light of the fact that these two are connected. Anyway, whew, sorry, I'm late. Um, Heavenly Father, Lord, we, Lord, we want to praise you. Lord, again, we want to um, magnify your greatness. Lord, that you are the God who spoke the entire universe into being. That the glory of the cosmos isn't meant to be something that simply scientists want to figure out, Lord, so they can be smarter and have uh, Nobel Peace Prizes and, and new degrees and new areas of study. Lord, we're not meant to be uh, searching the, the galaxies, Lord, for extra life. Lord, as we go by each planet, each comet, Lord, each moon, each star that we find new pictures of, Lord, it is all meant to declare your glory, as we see in Psalm 19. Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him? Lord, are us little embodied souls, these shells that we have, these jars of clay that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Lord, what are we that you are mindful of us? But Lord, you are near those who are contrite and lowly in heart. Lord, we pray that we would honor you with our bodies. Lord, we pray that we would seek you and thirst for you with our souls. Lord, that you would be the good shepherd who leads us beside still waters, who restores our souls. Lord, to the uh, original design and, and in the even greater design. Lord, we, we don't even know what these spiritual bodies will be. Lord, we can't even fathom these bodies that will be like the man of heaven. But Lord, we know they will be imperishable. We know they will be powerful. We know that they will be glorious. And so Lord, I pray, yeah, Lord, that Lord, we would just honor you, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, 
mind, and our strength, body and soul. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.